of the industries most affected by the coronavirus pandemic has been healthcare, with hospitals not only serving on the front lines of the response to COVID-19, but also seeing their finances upended by a temporary ban on elective procedures. The pandemic has also accelerated the adoption of telehealth as implications for hospitals' operations and their physical expansion plans. Against this backdrop, Columbus Business First wanted to hear directly from the leaders of the region's major hospital systems. We sat down virtually with the four execs in late September to discuss the future of healthcare. Joining the conversation were Lorraine Lutton, CEO of Mount Carmel Health System, Stephen Markovich, CEO of Ohio Health, Hal Paz, CEO of the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, and Tim Robinson, CEO of Nationwide Children's Hospital. Business First Healthcare reporter Carrie Ghosh moderated. We hope you enjoyed the discussion and return for more of our quarterly forums. Doug Buchanan. With us also is Carrie Ghosh, who I'm sure you're all familiar with, and Mark Summerson, our, our managing editor. I appreciate everybody taking the time to join us here today. This is a, uh, an, a very obviously important time for healthcare, so we appreciate you sharing your perspectives on, uh, on kind of what is happening uh, in your industry. Carrie, it's all yours. Thanks for joining us here at Columbus Business First, and uh, before we get started, just wanted to pass through you to your staffs a heartfelt thank you for every life they saved, every discovery they participated in, and every family they've had to comfort. So with that, you know, we've been at this now for several months. Obviously, all of your top and bottom lines have been impacted to different degrees for the different systems. If you could just catch us up with where you are right now as far as the financial impact of the pandemic. So for instance, I understand uh, Mount Carmel is back to about 90% of the pre-COVID volume. Um, how has that been for everyone else? If everyone just wants to briefly take it in turn, how are you all doing financially at the moment? Ohio Health is in a similar situation. If you look at our uh, adjusted admissions, our occupancy, our ED visits, they are probably at about 95% of what we would call pre-COVID baseline. Our case mix, the acuity of the patients that we're taking care of is actually significantly higher than it was pre-COVID. And uh, our, expense, our expense per unit of service is significantly lower. We did a lot of things to reduce expenses. So, and our outpatient visits are significantly up. So if you think about it from a where healthcare, where we've been trying to get healthcare to go away from the hospitals into the lower acuity settings, into the doctor's offices. We seem to have accomplished some of that via COVID as, a, as an incidental thing behind COVID. The economics right now for us, probably because of a, a combination of payer mix and case mix are working relatively well combined, you know, based on case mix, payer mix, and the fact we did some really good expense control. We're uh, achieving our budget targets right now. We could hear from Mr. Robinson on how you folks are doing. Did you ever have to furlough employees? And since children uh, are affected differently from this, were hospital operations affected differently? You know, when the pandemic started back in, and things really got in place in April and the uh, elective uh, procedures were suspended, we were, volume was down about 40%. So at that time, uh, we had to redeploy employees. We had to temporarily have people on leave. We've done things to, you know, mostly brought them all back. We are now about 10% off of our mark, off our pre-COVID mark. Uh, it's varied, and you know, in our cancer program and on our on-site uh, neonatal intensive care units, those are really at historical levels. But if you look at our inpatient or our ED and urgent care, some of the ambulatory sites, kids have been uh, sequestered more than adults, you know, being out of school. They are not infecting each other. They're not as active in sports and those types of things. So you see a little bit of an impact from that. And I think that's what that residual impact is for us. The other thing we've seen is that we have offsite neonatal intensive care units and all the adult systems. Those volumes are down pretty dramatically. And we're wondering, and what we've seen on a national scene is that maybe some of the stressors that moms are going through, the physical stressors have been down and reporting less premature births. Uh, births are down a little bit, but premature activity, prematurity is down, which is a real blessing, whether that's sustainable and, you know, just reflective of the times where, you know, we're starting to look at that from a research perspective, but we are hearing that trend around, trend around the country. If we could hear from Ms. Lutton. 
as you mentioned, our volumes are probably back to 90% of pre-COVID, or at least compared to last year the, and pre-COVID. So we are about 90% of our staff are back as well. We, we actually downsize our organization. This is an opportunity to kind of re reduce some administrative overhead that we needed to do regardless of COVID. So I, I think we're a leaner organization and I think that served us well. If you take out the CARES Act, sort of the one-time dollars, we're sort of better than we were, but not where we want to be. Um, with the CARES Act dollars, I think we are, you know, we're, we're back to budget and back to plan. And OSU had a different kind of circumstance being such a specialty referral system uh, for, you know, the state prison hospital where the prison outbreaks were so terrible. So you probably saw a huge amount of volume of cases from this, but at least as far as the year end figures, uh, you were not that far off your, your budget. So how, how are things looking right now? During the peak of the pandemic, we were very, very busy, but we were not doing elective cases and that had an impact on the distribution of the kind of work we were doing across the various hospitals at the medical center. We've seen now uh, a number of interesting things. So we're really back in, in large part to where we were before. The hospitals are full on any given day. They are, they are just full. And one of the challenges we have is, you know, where do we put all the patients? The team has done an exceptional job there. What we saw in our pivot to telehealth has persisted, which is terrific. I, you know, I think that there was this other curve, which is the curve of technology and innovation uh, across the economy. And healthcare was the one sector of the economy that was kind of the last to arrive. And it's arrived. I mean, the way that care is being delivered today through telehealth and digital is definitely uh, changing the landscape. And we've seen that persist. And, you know, we're, we're looking at numbers nationally, but that's important and allows us to uh, allow for much better access to care, particularly for uh, certain segments of, of the community. So that continues on. The clinics are, are very, very busy, and um, that's in large part why uh, last month we made the announcement about moving forward with our bed tower, because we need more beds, and a lot of that is specialty care, which is, which is so important to this community and this region. Ms. Lutton mentioned a kind of permanent restructuring of at least at the administrative staff. So for the rest of you, I know Ohio Health and OSU have said there were no furloughs, but I know Ohio Health for a while had to redistribute some of your workforce, reassign them janitorial services, helping with distributing PPE or, or whatnot. What are things that have changed about your staffing levels that persist going forward and, and what have you been able to restore? So is anyone down besides Mount Carmel staff-wise? And just to clarify, our clinical staff, everybody else is sort of back, you know, corresponding with patient yeah, Those were all administrative yeah, or executive. Yeah. Okay. Right. And I think, I think the other piece that we probably all are recommitted to is, is obviously the testing. We all have resources allocated towards community testing that we wouldn't have otherwise. I agree with Lorraine. I mean, the, we've, uh, all the clinical staff is pretty much, uh, and, and, uh, and how, but we're very busy. So the clinical staff has really been brought back and are, are fully engaged at the moment. We do have some things now that we didn't have before. I'm looking out my window at a big testing lane right out in the parking lot. So you've got folks out there and that's a major undertaking to run, to run those operations. For the most part, all of our staff is back to their original jobs. I would say the same is, is true for Nationwide Children's. The thing that we're experiencing that everyone's experiencing is we've got about 3,000 people that are working remotely, which is a new dynamic, and that's in information technology and finance and you know, non-direct care areas, uh, which is something that we're all still trying to navigate and figuring out what the new normal is for that and what's most efficient and what is best supportive of our culture and you know, onboarding folks. But uh, that's a new phenomenon along with the uh, telehealth piece, which was very profound for us, 200,000 cases. 50% of that was our, our behavioral health volume. Uh, but also this this new dynamic with our workforce and being you know being more remote and uh, and making sure that we're still efficient as we do that, but being able to accommodate people more effectively. So now all of you have had to change your investments because of the shift to telehealth. So where do you see your your budgets going as far as redirecting things into tech? How reimbursements change? What what are the impacts of adding telehealth to your repertoire? 
I think the technology has been av available to us for years. I think it's the adoption of it that was slow. And so for us, I think the, the more subtle changes are the clinicians who are providing the care and have we trained them to provide as great care as they provide in person through tele. And so I think it's more of a commitment to um, making sure that the providers are well prepared to provide care virtually just as they are you know, in any other setting. Yeah, I think the real question is, what does this mean for the investments that have been made historically in bricks and mortar, just like in any other sector of the economy? When you make this pivot, the assumptions that you had 5, 10, 15 years ago could become very different. And that's where we're spending a lot of our time strategically thinking about what the new normal looks like, what the future looks like after the pandemic. But let me just say this, you know, we're two months into our new fiscal year and we're very, very pleased with how things are going. But what we don't know is, will there be another surge? We are very concerned about the data that we're seeing from Western Europe, for example. If there is another surge, what does that mean in terms of how we operate? Do we go back to some of the things that we had to do in March and April? And, and what does that mean for CARES dollars? Uh, we were very pleased with how last year ended, but that ended the way it did because we did receive CARES dollars. And we don't know what, what the future holds there. So. We're doing everything we can to be as optimistic about the future as, as we should be, but at the same time, we're preparing for the unknown and we're looking for ways to reduce expense where we can do that by being as efficient as we can possibly be. We use national benchmarks of other academic health centers across the nation to see how we can optimize our, optim our operations and at the same time, make sure that our workforce is fully engaged in the work that we have, including the potential of there being more COVID in the months to come as the weather gets cold and until we have a vaccine and until we can convince everybody to wear a mask. So Children's Open, this magnificent behavioral health pavilion, literally, it was days, perhaps one week before stay-at-home orders. It was you know, probably my last big assignment out of the office before heading over to uh, the State House for the, those first uh, news conferences. And as you mentioned, now 50% of your behavioral health visits are telehealth. How does what has happened here change your thinking about that building? How did it affect the operations of that building? There's got to be startup expenses. And then for the rest of you, how is this changing your thoughts about facilities design, expansion? Obviously, OSU is going on with a $2 billion tower but I'm packing too much into one question, so let's talk about behavioral health at Children's first. We felt very blessed to be able to open our 380,000 square foot Big Lots Behavioral Health Pavilion, right as things were starting to turn and have the wonderful events to celebrate, <laughs> and, uh, bring experts from around the country for a summit, and then things changed dramatically. What's unique about the building, it is about crisis services, so emergency department for behavioral health, observation, uh, crisis unit for, for uh, use uh, for adolescents, uh, inpatient, partial hospitalization. So it is mostly a, you know, a high-end tertiary and the ambulatory network, you know, is around to support it. There is some ambulatory, but really more on the, you know, the, the, the more uh, significant uh, interventions. So we feel very blessed with COVID and all the challenges that kids are going to have with this environment to be able to, to, you know, to have this resource to respond. Our census has been as at expected levels on the inpatient side. So, you know, kids are still seeing the challenges that they're seeing and we expect that to grow as they start to engage in the school year and the like. So, you know, we have a, a real challenge in our community with behavioral health services. One in five kids is affected by a, you know, a treatable behavioral health issue and only about half of them are still being seen around the country. So, we're leaning in hard and we think these resources are really going to help our community. Do we expect another multi-hundred million dollar expansion, the next one to come out of Children's? Are you, you giving it a pause for a while? No, we, we've, in a, different, in a different area, we just broke ground on our fourth research building. So, you know, if anything, the pandemic has taught us is that, you know, the investment in research, uh, medical research is incredibly important. And so, uh, again, we're leaning forward on a strategic plan that we had in that area, and, and we just broke ground on the fourth research building. Um, right now, we um, haven't any announced plans in terms of other clinical expansion and really waiting to see how this new phenomena with telehealth and what everyone was alluding to is what is the, you know, the physical 
uh, plant um, requirements on the, at least on the ambulatory side. So we're we're trying to figure that out still. Uh, should we be expecting more announcements of freestanding ERs or uh, even hospitals coming out of Mount Carmel or Ohio Health? We are opening uh, one that was already uh, under construction in February and have one other plan. But I think at this point, like everyone else, we're trying to think about bricks and mortar very, very carefully. And we have a, a large home health program and, and even have a, a hospital at home program. And we're trying to figure out how to invest more in that so that we can provide great care in the home at a, obviously a less expensive setting. I, we're, we're looking very hard right now at redefining access, what that means. You know, if you go back four or five years ago, we had, we had put a flag in the ground that we wanted, we wanted access points within you know, seven to 10 minutes of, you, know, you shouldn't have to go farther than seven to 10 minutes to get to, to an access point for, for uh, ER services, using ER as an example. We may need to relook at that in the face of the new, the new definition of care. We also have to look at how people want to access the system. Traditional bricks and mortar may not be the best vehicle for all of us, telemedicine has grown significantly, but the, the whole digital platform, how people want to use that, what services they want to consume through the, through the platform. So we need to look at that uh, and, and segment the, look at the demographics of society. Different people want to access services in different ways, and we need to make sure we meet all their needs. Now, OSU is going in a completely different direction, and, and you, Dr. Paz, you've talked about how you're serving a slightly different function that you envision a future where say the the rural or community hospitals that we see struggling now will ever more turn into outpatient facilities with the very sickest of the sick being referred to the organ transplant center for the state etc if you could expound a little bit on that um as briefly as we can i know it's a big topic and then how does that affect all the rest of you i mean do, do you think that your tertiary hospitals are going to have a bigger role in the future as referral points for rural hospitals? Are your hospitals, you know, is a Dublin Methodist in trouble in a, in a future world like this? Probably not. It's the most profitable one you've got, but bad. A burger, let's say. Yeah, so, I, you know, I don't think that those issues that you raised, Carrie, fly in conflict of each other. I think they can all be brought together. The greatest opportunities that we have at Ohio State is to partner and collaborate. And those collaborations go on today with everybody that is on, on this uh, video, video chat or whatever we call these things now. You know, we have an affiliation agreement with Mount Carmel. We partner with Nationwide in so many different ways. We partner with Ohio Health on, on EMS transport. I mean, there's a list of collaborations. And I think quite frankly, all of us are nonprofit. We all have a responsibility to this broad community to make it as healthy as we possibly can. Where we compete, we compete. And that's no different than any other part of the country. But where we have opportunities to collaborate, we absolutely should. And I have to say, we've demonstrated this during the pandemic. We got together. We figured out what we needed to do if we went all the way to level three surge. We took over the convention center. And we received national attention for that including on one of the CMS calls that Administrator Varma led, where we talked about the Columbus Way and how it allowed us to get to a place that others looked at as a model for what they called a hospital without walls. So, so that's, those are the proof points. And, and you know, it's all about the spirit and the unique attributes of, of this region and, and the Columbus Way, quite frankly. And I'm very proud of that. So, and I know all my colleagues are as well. In terms of our view, you know, we look at the transformation from hospitals to health systems, from health systems to health platforms, and everybody described this in a different way. Though at the same time, at Ohio State, we have at the Wexner Medical Center some unique responsibilities. We have the third largest cancer hospital in the nation. As you said, one of the largest transplant programs in the nation. And we have a burn unit, one of only two in the state. Just, those are just a few of the examples. I think the no highest number of Medicaid discharges in the entire state of Ohio. So we have a responsibility to the, the underserved populations, those that you know, fall through the social safety net in some respect, in, in many respects. So there, there are things that are unique, but at the same time, what's not unique are all the things you just heard. How do we drive care into the home? How do we better use home health? How do we pivot on outpatient sites so that 
while they can provide uh, services that used to be done in the hospital setting, in the outpatient setting, they're connected to the community broadly through home health care, through leveraging agencies and services in the local community to create personalized health for every individual. So on top of that, we have the special responsibility because we have to educate the next generation of healthcare practitioner. There are 10,000 health science students on the Ohio State campus. And shame on me, frankly, if we teach them how healthcare was delivered 20 years ago. We need to be teaching them how healthcare will be delivered in the future so when they graduate here, they have a diploma that will be durable for the next 40 years of their working life. And, and that's what we're focused on, which is the future. So all that said, why do you need this tower? Well, we need the tower for a few reasons. One, because as I said earlier, we're out of beds. Number two, it's replacing two buildings, one of which was built 70 years ago, and it's, it's time for a refresh on, on, on those two buildings, quite frankly. We need a state-of-the-art facility. And we've learned a lot of important lessons during the pandemic, that as we build this new building, a lot of those rooms are gonna be negative flow rooms, they're gonna be ICUs, or they're gonna be step-down ICUs that can quickly be converted to an ICU. Because I know I speak for my colleagues when I say, we don't wanna to have to rent a convention center again if we don't have to. And you know, we wanna shoulder our, our part of the responsibility, should there ever be future episodes like this again, where we can care for those patients in, at the right place at the right time. And that's how we're designing this tower for the future. So it's practically across the street. Does the shadow of this tower fall on Riverside or on Burger? I don't think so. I mean, we clearly have, uh, as Hal described, our missions are a little bit different. But if you look at if you look at Ohio State, you look at Grant, you look at Riverside, we're running at capacity. I can't speak for Mount Carmel on the east side, but we're pretty much running at capacity every day. So you think about where healthcare is going. It, 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 in the 47 counties that we serve with physical assets and physicians and offices and, and uh, healthcare facilities, you know, our, our concept, our, we believe deeply that the model of care is to keep care as close to home as possible, as long as possible, even in the home to the maximum extent possible. But there will be times when you need the tertiary care hospital. And that's why you need, you need those centers that are capable, that are, that are broad, highly complex institutions and they need to be open. They need to have capacity. They need to be able to say yes when the call comes. So your Dublins and your Burgers and your Mansfields, those, those places need to have places where they can unload the sickest of the sick. And that for the near future, for the future as, as far as we can predict is gonna be a model that, we're, that is gonna exist. Places like Riverside are going to become, as I mentioned in my, my opening comments, if you, if you look at the acuity in our big facilities, it is going up. The people are sicker, and to a certain extent, that makes that makes good sense, and that makes a good use of that of that physical plant. And then in the communities that you know, you want to put the right kind of center in a community that they can support. We want to make sure people have the right access, that it's close, that it's high quality. But you've also got to think about what they really need in the community, and can you, if you've got a really efficient system, a network uh, to take care of patients when they need to move. If that works really, really well, you'll, you'll be able to take better care of the people. 13 years ago, I started on this beat, and your predecessors would tell me, we're going to shift from volume to value. And uh, here we are. Is the adoption of telemedicine finally, or the rethinking of facilities, are, are we finally going to really get there, or will there still be, we need to have extra facility fees for the OR versus the physician versus the cost of the knee implant. And if you really do have this goal in mind to pay for value, why is your industry so heartily fighting these pricing transparency or surprise billing type of measures? At Nationwide Children's, we've had Partners for Kids, are one of the largest pediatric accountable care organizations in the country. Uh, we're going at risk for 340,000 Medicaid kids in our 37 county area. We just announced a partnership with Dayton Children's to expand that to another 12 counties. So we're facilitating that same time of perspective where it is all about value. We provide, we receive, you know, a per member per, per month stipend, and we need to redistribute the dollars to make that most effective. So our focus goes on to, you know, wellness and well, well checks and being in the schools 
working on infant mortality and all of those types of things, uh, you know, providing asthma treatments in the schools to, to, better, to better manage that care. And so, you know, we see that as prime to our culture, to who we are, to really be able to get the, you know, the most wellness for our kids as possible. And even going in so far as to really start going upstream to the social determinants of health, working with healthy neighborhoods, healthy families, and housing and workforce development, getting out into the communities. We've been doing it on the south side. Now we're looking to partners with others to do that in the Linden area. So we have an absolute commitment to that. And care coordination and all of those types of things uh, really make a difference. We've been able to demonstrate that with research and really uh, back our uh, model up with, you know, with performance measures. And, you know, so we're leaning in hard. So, you know, there's, there's an old saying that people overestimate the impact of change on the short term and underestimate it on the long term. Aetna wrote its, I know a little bit about this coming from CVS Health Aetna. Aetna wrote its first health insurance policy in 1899. It was really for catastrophic care. Uh, and of course, things started to pick up when Blue's plans and Kaiser got launched in the 1930s. And then, of course, we all know that Medicare and Medicaid were created during the Johnson administration and things really picked up. Fee-for-service reimbursement has been around for over a century in one form or another. And we are now at this, um, at, at this pivot point where we're moving, as, as Tim just said, in various different ways, much, much more towards value-based reimbursement and, and ultimately in some models, global uh, reimbursement. At the end of the day, when we get there, and I think it's inevitable, now I know some people will disagree with me and that's a great debate to have, but we will uh, over time get to a place where frankly, we will be positioned as providers to look holistically at the patient, to look at, as Tim said, social determinants of health, behavioral determinants of health, environmental determinants of health, attach that to the biology of understanding genetics, and then make sure that healthcare is adding value in every which way possible. And we win by having the best possible outcomes for the patients that we serve. That's how we win. The patient doesn't have to worry about what's the list price for this or that. We don't have to spend enormous amounts of time on back office operations dealing with payers. We figured out models where we can partner with payers, come up with solutions that really achieve a much more efficient and better outcome for the patients that we care for. That's where we're heading. There are plenty of models getting us there and, and there are examples of the country that have achieved that already. But in the meantime, we have ACOs and other types of value-based arrangements with payers that are moving us further and further in that direction. The pandemic changed that. Did it accelerate it? I think there's nothing else. The pandemic helped us realize how fragile fee-for-service is. So in March, April, May, when we'd had no elective surgeries and fee-for-service went away and we were all losing tens of millions of dollars, I think we all said, wow, fee-for-service, we, we cannot rely on this in the future. We absolutely have to be at risk for the global payment for, for managing financial and clinical risk for a population of patients. And so I think if nothing else, that recognition will help stimulate more investment in holistic care for the patient and really taking on that risk. Dr. Markovich. Value continues to be a major part of the strategy for Ohio Health. Moving to value-based payments, disease management, is a major emphasis for us, how we look at cost and how we manage protocols related to patient care. So to Lorraine's point, the uh, the, the crash in fee-for-service revenue was a, was an eye-opener. So we have a lot of conversations about how do we how do we accelerate things? How do we, we're talking more about diversification than we ever have before. We're talking a lot about wellness. So those things are still forefront. I think, I think the telemedicine was just a tool that was that we were able to amplify and to to really it's, it's been there for a long, long time, but it, it went from, you know, single digit utilization to thousands literally overnight. And it, it continues to be a very, a very important part of our portfolio. But the idea of value, partnering with the governor, government, partnering with the business community, partnering with the payers to figure out how to create a system and a structure that works is, is really, I think it's just over the horizon. And I think it's gonna be a very big part of all of our portfolios. What about charge masters that show these kind of fantasy prices that no one ever actually really charges? That's, <laughs> um, why not more transparency so that there can be, I mean, is free market competition as we understand it when we go to Target, 
the same as it could be in healthcare, or is it just too complex? Well, the, the problem is equating the, the way reimbursement occurs in the hospital setting or the healthcare setting with true retail or direct to consumer type of experiences like the example you just used. Uh, we care for patients, but in most cases, the payer is somebody else. It's an insurance company or the government. And there are relationships that exist, contracts that exist, that are, are used to determine what the prices are. The charge master that you refer to, you know, I, I've been uh, a healthcare CEO for a long time. When I started my first job as a CEO, I asked to see the charge master. And, you know, it is uh, an amazing book that uh, literally is no longer on paper, but has that grows at an institution over time and there are changes that are made to it incrementally. But at the end of the day, what really counts is what are the contracts that exist between a provider and a payer? What, is Medic what are the Medicare rates? What are the Medicaid rates? Those are the things that determine what the cost of healthcare is. Those contracts are proprietary and they're negotiated. That's the, pro that's the issue that, you, that you're raising is that the relationship that Ohio Health has with a payer and Ohio State has with a payer those are, those are negotiated, and that could, that's what creates the challenge. And because we compete, I don't know what they're paying Ohio Health or Mount Carmel, and nor, nor should I, quite frankly, because as much as we, we cooperate and we collaborate, we're also competitors, and there's no way that I could know what a certain payer is paying uh, my three colleagues. Now, we don't, we don't care for the same patients as nationwide, so that's a different situation, but it, it is not with the other two adult systems in this, in this community, or as they call it, in this market. I would say also a lot of the consternation comes from what is the individual going to pay? That's what seems to be the most relevant and important. The rest of this is done through these you know, uh, negotiations that we've described. And the problem with our ability to do that is we need information from the insurance companies on what their existing, you know, how much their deductible has been and all of those types of things to be able to translate that and provide it to the families in a meaningful way uh, is where the real challenge becomes. It's, it's a very complex system with a lot of logistics and we're reliant on the insurance company to provide us feedback. And that's been one of the issues in, in Ohio is we simply don't have the data to be compliant with what, you know, what they've been requesting. So that's a big part of it and getting it down to the point of what's the impact on a, in our case on a family um, is really what we need to try and solve. And, I think all of us as an industry are supportive of doing that and giving transparency to families. It's just we are only a part of the equation. And, and to Tim's point on the insurer's side, it's not very simple either, quite frankly, because we talk about a commercial plan, but a commercial plan is really a roll-up of contracts that an insurer has with multiple employers. And every relationship that the insurer has with the employer results in different prices, different co-pays, different deductibles. So there is no single payer, there's no single plan within that payer. And these payers are often not only doing commercial, but they're doing Medicare Advantage, they're doing Medicaid, they're doing behavioral health, they're doing dental. So trying to isolate this down to what is one, one reimbursement cycle between a provider and a payer is wildly complicated. And, and that creates a lot of the challenges that both sides of this industry have on a day-to-day -day basis and that's why there's a lot of embedded cost, quite frankly, that is not cost that's being part of the clinical equation. It's all the administrative costs of, of the revenue cycle. And it's, it's significant. It's describing fundamentally at odds with the shift to value. It's historical. And as we continue incrementally to move more and more towards value, I think some of those costs wind up going away. At least that's my, my hope. I hope I don't sound too idealistic about this, but I truly believe if we can do this well and we can look at more global types of arrangements, those costs should go away to everyone's benefit. And, and we, we've been able to prove that with Partners for Kids and that there doesn't need to be, you know, utilization review and that type of thing because that falls on our shoulders because we're the most vested in it. And you can take out a lot of the denials and all of that type of activity because we're aligned economically on this. It's, it's a tricky transition to go from a, on, a, on the commercial point of you know, business and getting everyone to transition for a lot of the reasons that Hal described earlier. It's you know, employers and you know, multiple plans within a plan and all of those complexities makes this a, a hard journey, but I think it's one that we're all 
interested in taking. And you know, for us on the Medicaid side, we've been able to demonstrate that that you can take some of that burden out and uh, pass on savings to the state. We can do better as a provider, and kids definitely do better from a quality perspective. Sure. Plan plan design is very very complex, and every every employer sets up their you know if they're if they're an ASO in an ASO market, they set up their own plans. And it's very challenging for even the providers to be able to tell a patient, we don't know where they are in their deductible cycle. We don't know what their co-pays necessarily are. There are some systems that are helping us get better at that so that we can get some information on where the patient, you know, the patient specifically is in their relative to their plan. But it is a very, very complex system. And it's not just a function of the hospital charge master and the relationship we have with the payers. It's the entire design of the system and the plans. It's a benefit plan. Um, all four of you obviously are, are new to your positions, two completely new to Columbus, and yet you have children's uh, notwithstanding, a historic competitive uh, relationship, competing for market share, both building in Grove City, both building in Dublin, all within a mile of each other in Liberty Township. How does being new, at least to the position or to the market, enable you to build a co-opetition relationship uh, going forward? Or, you know, do, do you just come in fighting? I don't think that's the way it works. And I mean, I, Lorraine's from outside. I mean, I've been here for a long time, just not, I'm new to the job. I don't think that's how it works in Columbus. I think it is, you know, I think all of us are trying to do the best thing we can for the patients we serve. And at, sometimes we compete and we want to make sure that we've got high quality and access and uh, and a system that's easy to navigate. But at the same time, when it comes to the really big issues in Columbus, infant mortality, access for the underserved, opioids, we come together. And we really try, you know, the, the pandemic. We came, there was that, there, we came together like instantly on that. So I think we're, we live in a very unique place where yes, we do compete. And yes, we try to, to make sure that our businesses are sustainable. And we're able to provide care, you know, for the for the foreseeable future. But for the really important things, uh, I think we're a great team. And you know, I would say the advantage is you come in without preconceived notions, which is terrific. You know, I spent roughly ten years in Central Pennsylvania, which is the Midwest, and ironically, there in the middle of the state, right by the state capital, there was an academic health system, there was a large community health system, and a Catholic health system, all within miles of each other. And the one thing I learned over 10 years was through collaboration, you could get an enormous amount done that not only benefits the three institutions, but much more importantly, benefits the community. And at the end of the day, I'm positive. That's why all of us that are here this morning are in our roles, because if we weren't interested in that, there are plenty of other things these folks could be doing, certainly. It's really how can we do a better job of having a healthier community? At the end of the day, that's what this is really all about. I do think being new to the community that coming during the time of pandemic is actually um, a very good way to start in terms of we're all looking at things differently. We are collaborating on community health and, and how do we uh, transform our organizations to better meet the needs of the community during a pandemic. But I also think we are collaborating on a lot of other things as well. I think about um, the impact of the pandemic on economic you know, unemployment, not having health insurance. What is that going to do for us as a community and how do we need to make sure we're providing care for all, uh, regardless of, of ability to pay differently. I think about the racial um, protest and, and sort of the recognition of inequity in outcomes for healthcare and how are we going to work together to collaborate for the betterment of this community to make sure that we're addressing those, those issues. So I think there's more to collaborate on than um, just the pandemic. And I think that is a good example of how we communicated and how our teams got together and worked together of how we're gonna to have to do things in the future to meet the needs of the, of the community with scarce resources. Maybe being a little bit more of the uh, independent party here who has all, you know, all three systems as our, as our good friend. Uh, what I've seen as I've traveled the country and talked to my peers is Columbus has a very rational system. It seems right-sized, the right level of competition, the right level of cooperation and how referenced it the Columbus way is a is a real phenomenon. We all sit on the partnership. We are all thinking about, you know, how do we optimize the, um, you know, the status and the success of all of our of all of our community. And it is very different and very unique. And you know, through the eyes of my peers, 
I've been able to feel, see how blessed we are in Columbus and how rational our system is. It, it, feels, it feels like it comes together very well. Uh, you bring up the example of the convention center. At the time, it seemed uh, quite necessary or you know, we were all quite fearful, but none of you ever even got to the second layer of surge where I'd say you'd be using converted post-op rooms. Mm -hmm. um, so in the end, was that really a necessary expense? Is there regret with that? And, and frankly, now they're using the convention center for other things like courtrooms. So where is all that stuff now? Is it in storage? Uh, are you ready to put it up again at a moment's notice? What happened to it and was it needed? No, no, yes and yes. So I, for me, no regrets. I mean, keep in mind at the time, uh, we saw pictures of Northern Italy. We saw pictures of what was going on in New York City and nobody knew what was gonna happen next. And we just, one thing I, I can speak for my colleagues, we knew for sure we didn't wanna look like either of those two places. So it was absolutely the right thing to do. Did it cost some money? Sure, but everybody buys insurance all the time and it costs money and you hope to never have to use it. So that was the right thing to do. The, the equipment has been taken out, it's in storage, and, and yes, it is ready to go. I hope we never need to do it, but we can redeploy and I think it's about two weeks time to get everything back in there and operational. And I'm looking at my colleagues for, for affirmation of that, but I think it is a two week time span that we're looking at to get this thing back yeah. and up. I heard seven days, seven to 10. All right, so good. Yeah. No regrets whatsoever. I mean, that was the smartest thing we could have done. I agree with Hal. You saw terrible pictures uh, coming out of uh, New York, coming out of uh, uh, Europe. Uh, we had to be prepared. If nothing else, it brought us together, Franklin County Commissioners, City Government, Health Department, the National Guard. We, we, that, we had never, in, in, my, in my history in Columbus, we had never exercised for that kind of an event at that level, with that level of fidelity. If you think about it as almost a training, you know, if we ever need it the next time, if we can set this thing up in, in, in a couple of weeks again, it will be so much smoother and so much more efficient. I think it's a huge investment and well money, money well spent. I, I think there's a real shout out to Governor Mike DeWine and Director Atkins and the work that they did that enabled Ohio to fare, you know, to, to weather this storm much, much better. And uh, we're all very appreciative of, of that work and uh, the way that the state has rallied around their message and doing the responsible thing. And we need the, the community to continue to do that. So it's, uh, it's a real tribute to, to the administration. What is the one thing that each of you would say to the community? You know, people have lost businesses, lost health insurance. There is, you know, the vaccine is a year away we hear. What can you as leaders and, and, and folks in the trenches say, here is what Central Ohio or all of Ohio needs to do to come out of this? I'll start, I mean, the most obvious choice is continue to wear masks. That has been the single best um, defense against more disease and illness and death. So wearing masks and getting the flu vaccine, I would also uh, encourage people to get the flu vaccine when it's available or if it's available to you. Respect the virus. This is, the data around this virus is, we're learning more and more every day. This is still a serious threat. It, especially for the elderly and those with comorbidities, uh, it cannot be taken lightly. Couldn't agree more. Wearing the mask is incredibly important. Figuring out where it's safe to re-engage in society is incredibly important for, for our own mental health, for the economy, for our children, but to do that prudently. There are places where we can reopen if we do it very thoughtfully by de-densifying, by, for example, hybrid learning in class, but also using distance learning as examples. So these things are enormously important. And, and third, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this, support science and support research. We, we have to make sure that the kinds of decisions that we're making as individuals and as a society is fact-based and scientifically proven. We have to make sure that as a society, we invest in science to come, to come forward with the breakthroughs that are gonna prevent people from unnecessarily dying. Those vaccines, the monoclonal antibodies, the other uh, antiviral treatments we're hearing about, 
came out of a research laboratory somewhere. It didn't come out of thin air. And we have to respect the importance and value of that science. We have to continue to make those investments. If we don't, as a nation, we will fall behind others. And that's the last thing that we ever want to see happen to our country. I would close with, you know, I think the one tactical thing that we need to continue to work on is testing and making testing more available, especially as we get in the flu season and trying to differentiate between the, the, two, the two viruses. And then finally, economic success and health are not at competition. We need to to attack this thing, we need to have the population healthy in order to be able to thrive economically. They're not mutually exclusive. And I would just add, Carrie, I think all of us would say thank you to the community. Thank you for the support thus far. Thank you for taking the disease seriously. Thank you for uh, embracing um, our colleagues who are on the front lines for the work that they're doing. Carrie, if I could just jump in real quick. Lorraine, let me follow up on that real quick with you said that you were, I can't remember the phrasing you, you said, but you thought that the community responded well to the pandemic. I, 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 don't, I don't share that. I, <laughs> how, how confident are you or all of you that in, in how this uh, winter is going to go? I would say I'm not confident at all in how this winter is going to go. Having said that, I think that the science indicates mask work. And so to the extent that we can continue to reinforce that message, we have to, because as people are indoors more, um, it's gonna be even more important that we're masking more. So I, I think it's been mixed, as you know, we, we've gone through cycles where everybody was compliant and then you know, we weren't, and then you know, somebody you know gets sick and then we are, or you're around somebody older and, and who's, who's vulnerable and you, you wear it, but we've got to be more consistent and it will help with the flu as well. So I think, mm. I think we just need to, to continue to to beat the drum about wearing masks. And I think if you look at cases and deaths on a per capita basis, the state of Ohio has done done pretty well. You know, there's always opportunity to do better and education is a big, big part of that and getting these messages out. But um, if you look at the numbers in the New York Times and you look at them on a, on a population based uh, basis, I think there's data that supports that Ohio is, has, has done, done better than most. Al or Steve, are you what is your confidence level heading into the winter? I think the fall and the, the winter is going to be a, it's going to be a challenge. But flu shots, you know, the, you know very, making sure flu shots are available and people are, are going after them, wearing their masks, the hand washing. Hopefully, if we're doing all those things, it, you know, I, believe, I totally believe in the mask and the hand washing and the uh, limiting, limiting of how many of us, you know, get together at any given time. I'm in a building right now that was designed for 1,600. There are 13 of us here today. Um, so we're, we continue to take it very seriously about how many people come together and the size of groups and things like that. So I think as a community, we need to, we need to, we need to really embrace those things. How do I think the fall is going to be? I just don't know. I just don't know. But, so I know, but we got to go after it. It's overwhelming at times as an issue, without a doubt. And I know I'm stating the obvious, but at the end of the day, one of the critical measures is how many patients are in the hospital? How many patients are dying, right? There are a lot of viruses out there. There are viruses that are highly contagious, just as contagious as COVID, where the worst thing you do, the worst thing you get is you know, maybe a, a rash. We don't panic over those. They run through the community and we deal with it. This is a virus that kills people. This is a virus that could put someone in the hospital on a ventilator for a very long time. And then when they get out, they're left with the sequelae of some permanent injury. That's what we're trying to address here. We're trying to prevent people from dying. I mean, the numbers that we've hit nationally, the numbers that we've hit globally are just incredible. So that's what our primary focus has to be on. And we have to do this in ways that are as thoughtful as can be where we can continue with life to move forward, the economy to move forward, as much as we can manage to do that while making sure we keep people safe. That's really the goal. And you know, this is gonna be a hard winter and fall because everyone has had just about enough of this. I realize that. And the summer's gonna be over and we're not gonna be able to do the things that gave us a break during the warm weather. We're gonna have to you know, work through the, the next several months. It's gonna be incredibly hard for everybody. I, re I realize that, but we have to look at the light at, at the end of the tunnel and understand we will get to the other side. We will definitely get to the other side. 
And it'll be because of great public health measures, because of testing, and because of the vaccines and the other treatments, and then life will resume as we knew it. It's gonna take time though. And so what do you say to those folks who, as soon as the numbers look a little better, say, okay, that means open everything up. Let the bar stay open at midnight. You know, let all the kids go to school five days a week, no mess. Or I'm, I'm overstating it, but there's a lot of call for loosening restrictions. How do we strike a balance? I still say follow the science. Let, you know, follow the science and let that lead us to a place that's safe and reasonable, but make it data-driven. If you, if, you, if you go to the emotional, we're all frustrated, we've all got a little, uh, you know, cabin fever. If you, if, you let, if you let emotions make these decisions, you're going to hurt people. And the data, as Steve was saying, the data is testing. That's our data. The more we can do surveillance testing, the more frequently we can do it, the larger the population we're testing, we can get ahead of this. Because any patient that's in the hospital didn't get this yesterday. They got it two weeks ago. And if we can test now, we can prevent that person from being in the hospital. That's why this is so important. Well, we will continue to pound that message out there. As, as Carrie can attest, uh, anytime we write about this, we get blowback from people. So you know, I'm sure that you have experienced this yourselves. The, trust the science is not the universal, widely accepted uh, uh, statement that you, you know, that you think it would be, uh, which is unfortunate. But um, how Steve, Lorraine, Tim, uh, thank you very, very much for joining us today. We very much appreciate your time and going forward, your access that you've always uh, uh, given us. Uh, your, your industry is indispensable, even more so uh, these days, and uh, we appreciate the work that you're doing.